This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 99. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast. Today, we have another financial independence case study to learn how a real-life couple here in Canada were able to reach their financial independence number by the age of 34. And we talk specifically about the tactics, strategies, and mindset that you can apply in your own life to help hit your financial independence number quicker. Or if you're already at FI, these tactics can further help solidify and enhance your net worth and that extra financial cushion that's always nice to have when you're living off your portfolio. Our guest today is Kyle Prevo, who I have run the Canadian Financial Summit with for the past two years. What makes Kyle unique with his financial independence story is that he and his wife were able to get there on two teacher salaries. So oftentimes when we hear these stories of couples who have achieved financial independence really early on in life, they are often engineers, programmers, or other high-paying professions, which makes achieving that early retirement number easier. In Kyle's case, they were able to do it on two teacher salaries instead, so we're definitely getting a nice, unique perspective here. Now, this interview and presentation that Kyle prepared was actually one of the bonuses that we offered to Canadian Financial Summit attendees who bought the all-access pass. So you'll hear him reference his slides at a few points during this talk, but don't worry, all the lessons and advice still make total sense. And if you enjoy these types of episodes or have been enjoying the podcast in general, please leave a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps other Canadians discover the podcast and helps me with bringing on top-notch guests for you so that we can all learn from them. And also, I wanted to invite you to join me live for a free-to-attend webinar this November 29th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Arian from Enriched Academy and I will be holding a live presentation to help ease some of the anxiety by explaining away some of the uncertainty around retirement planning here in Canada. We'll be going over optimal use of registered accounts, so the RSP, the TFSA, the RIF. We'll be talking about retirement timeframes and how to best access your funds post-retirement. And this will be both for those looking to do an early retirement as well as those looking to do a more traditional retirement. And Arian and his team have also actually built a retirement cash flow calculator. So everybody attending will be granted free access to that tool as well. And last but not least, Arian and I will be doing a live Q&A as well at the end of the session so that we can answer any questions that you may have, whether it's about financial independence, early retirement, anything like that. And so the link to sign up for free for the live event is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash workshop. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash workshop. I hope to see you there. And now here is the interview. All right, Kyle, welcome to the session. Hey, thanks for having me, Cornell. So Kyle, for those not familiar with you, let's just start with the usual first question in a job interview. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure what the demographics of the All Access Pass would be here, Cornell, if people would have read our, our bios or not. But yeah, so I'm Kyle. You probably have noticed me if you've watched any of the other sessions here at the Summit over the last five or six years now. And in addition to sort of writing about personal finance in the online world, I'm a teacher and my wife is a teacher as well. We're sort of Canadian-based teachers for 10 years. And now we're actually in the desert here in Qatar, the country of Qatar, where the World Cup will be played shortly. And we're international teachers now. And I wanted to point out too, at the top of this all-access pass thing, that this session, that 
if I appear awkward at times, it's because this is like the most awkward faux pas thing for a rural Manitoban person to talk about their finances in a public setting. It is the most taboo thing you could do. Like you could give like a religious lecture online or something. Yet it would be far less controversial than revealing fairly financially intimate details. So I just want to point that out off the top if I appear awkward at any times. But yeah, that's a little about me. I'm 34. My wife is a little younger than me. She'll be hitting that age shortly. And yeah, I'm not sure what else. We love travel. I enjoy watching sports and long walks on the beach, I guess. (laughs) Well, you're fine now, so you'll have lots of time for those. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Sitting in the Adirondack chairs and walking on the beach. The front cover of every Freedom 55 pamphlet known to man. And in your case, long walks on the desert with hopefully that's, proper hydration. That's right. One big beach. Exactly. <laughs> you took the whole beach theme to the extreme. You're just like, let's just do that's, the desert. That's right. There's, beach we, all year round. <laughs> exactly. All right. So you recently reached financial dependence. Uh, tell us about what that term means to you and what your plans are in terms of work going forward. I imagine you like... I think literally every five person I've spoken to, anyone that's hit that early retirement stage, none of them actually end up just golfing all day or just you know laying on the beach all day, or in your case, sand at the desert. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us what your plans are and, and how all that kind of happened. Yeah. So I think people hear financial independence and some people think retirement. And often the two do go hand in hand. And I think in prior generations, you know, if you were fortunate to have enough money where you could retire and never work again, That was quite common because you were probably 60, 65, 70, and your life expectancy might have been like 75, 78, somewhere in there. So I think obviously, and I know you and I have talked about this before, Cornell, and when we've done sort of your journey to FI in prior sessions, you've commented on the idea of like, look, just because you're financially independent doesn't mean you want to quit being creative or productive. It just kind of means that your motivations for doing so and sort of what you're willing to put up with maybe change a little bit in terms of earning money and trading money, time for money and stuff like that. So I think going forward, what FI will probably look like for my wife and I is we'll probably be done with full-time teaching for the foreseeable future. Not necessarily that we'll never go back to it or that we won't take like a term position or something if a friend really needed some help or if we tax-wise, it makes sense if you want to work a little bit. Your tax rate is obviously pretty low on any new income being made. So I could see us doing that. But for me, I think really it's going to be the location independence things like freelance writing, doing the summit here every year, those type of things I'll probably continue to do because I would say we're low key financial independence, which means, you know, we couldn't take private jets everywhere that basically I think our portfolio could conservatively produce for like three, four or five decades, probably close to maybe one average wage in Canada. So obviously, if you're a one-income household, you know that you can get by, but it's maybe not a lot of luxuries. So being at that level of FI where we never have to work again, I think probably we'll want some like cherry on top money, some like do some nice things type of money. So we'll probably work, take some side gigs here and there. And, and I think really a lot of what we're looking forward to in the medium term is just seeing a little bit of the world because we both grew up in rural, in Molly's case, rural Northern Ontario, and in my case, in rural Manitoba. So we really have a lot of the world to see and we'll be excited to kind of explore that and 
take a page out of some of the other session presenters here. I've been listening to them for two or three years now taking notes. So I've got my mm-hmm. list of places that I can't wait to go see. That's right. That's awesome. And I know you tossed some slides together as well, just to make things a little bit more sort of engaging. So why don't we get you to share those if you don't mind? And can you tell us what you think your keys to financial success were? Yeah, for sure, Cornell. So I just tossed together here a quick slideshow. I'm much better writer, I think writer than I am a creative artist. So you'll have to bear <laughs> with me here as far as visuals go. But I just thought it might help some folks just to, to visualize as we're going through. So when it comes to the keys to financial success, I think off the top, especially as I get older, you realize like there's things that you can control that are key to financial success. And then there's things that you can't control or that are just a part of your identity and who you are that you really had not a lot of control over. And those either helped or didn't help towards financial success. It wasn't, I don't want this to come across as like, look what my wife and I did. We did this all on our own. Just do what we did and you'll always be successful because the fact of the matter is we know that that's not true. So I just say that off the top to kind of set up how I see our keys to financial success personally. So I think what I've done a lot of writing about over the years is making the right investments using low cost in index investing. That's something I had control over. I researched it. I understood the ins and outs of it quite at an early age because I'm a nerd and I did a lot of reading. And I was convinced by some really smart people that that was the way to go. So that even when markets were down, I had no problem investing money and I didn't sell any of my index investments. So I knew how to keep costs low and I knew how to sort of adjust for common behavioral mistakes. So I think that was a big key. I'm going to give myself a little bit of credit on the work ethic front. I think that's one thing my parents sort of always prided themselves on. And I think they passed that on to me. And I think my wife and I are... I think we've worked pretty hard and done a lot of different things and some have worked and some haven't worked as well. But that's another thing that we could control and we did. In terms of the keys on the earning side of things, we both went to university, got a university education. We got government jobs as teachers, plus a side hustle, which you know we both had going on. And even just my success in my freelance writing side hustle was only possible because my wife was willing to support support us in doing that and also to be my proofreader because my grammar has improved over the last 12 years, but it's still pretty bad. So uh, <laughs> any mistakes are mine, but what's left is the credit would go to her on that front. Um, so you're saying you're not grammar. an English teacher, eh, Kyle? That yeah, was that- If I ever did teach English, it was more on the essay writing side of things as opposed to the fine tuning of grammar. I can get the worst mistakes, but those split infinitives, they get me. So anyway, I'm too verbose. Imagine that. Anyone who's been reading or listening to me for a while, I'm sure has a hard time imagining such a thing. But <laughs> so with the government job and side hustle combo, that was obviously nice because we had the pension match, we had the, you know, the life insurance and the, all the perks of being a unionized job, in addition to obviously earning a little extra on the side. We enjoyed a simple rural lifestyle, which I'll detail a little bit later here. And then our commitment to savings versus spending was another thing that we kind of had control over that. I'm not going to say even the term frugal, like when I look at some of the sacrifices a lot of people make, I wouldn't call us especially frugal. But even like you were joking about golf earlier, Cornell, like there's a good example. I don't particularly enjoy golf. I could take it or leave it. But because it's so expensive and it is, I think like people don't realize like how expensive golf actually is. Like by the time you pay your greens fees and membership, your new equipment, and then rarely do you go to the course without buying a meal or paying for some fairly marked up alcohol. 
all these different things. Anyway, that's a good example of like the savings versus spending commitment where mm-hmm. we had these goals, the spending, if we spent on luxuries, we enjoyed them and we made sure we were going to enjoy them. And so those are all kind of things we had some degree of control over. But I did want to highlight some of the things that we didn't have a lot of control over. We found, Molly and I found each other early in life, which has obviously worked out awesome for me. Maybe she would say different. I don't know. But yeah, I think it's worked out pretty good for us, obviously, from a relationship perspective and a life standard perspective, but also just from a mathematical standpoint in terms of building wealth, it's just much easier on with your couple. And the math is, is like the statistics are pretty clear on this, that people who are married build wealth quicker than non-married people. I mean, you have a roommate, you tend to go out less in terms of like super spendy dates, super spendy nights at clubs, that sort of thing. And so it's a little bit easier to start building wealth. You usually save for a down payment quicker if home ownership is one of those things. So that's something that we had no control over that fortunately happened to us. We both came from families that had pretty good social capital. So I thought I'd just point that out. Neither one of our families, we were both like working class for sure. Molly's parents were a teacher and secretary. My parents were a nurse and a lumberjack. I say that my dad owned a small business cutting trees for a living. So he was an actual lumberjack. We had a lot of red plaid in the house. So not that we had like a ton of um, old school money behind us or anything. But what I meant by social capital is that, you know, both our parents were able to help us get jobs when we were young people. Those jobs then helped us get more jobs. I was able to parlay like lifeguarding work into getting into faculties of education I ended up getting great summer jobs and I was in university and all that probably helped me get my first teaching job. There's a lot of people that don't have those connections. So I thought I would just point that out. I'll detail later too. My parents were able to give me a little help to get through university. That allowed me to graduate without student loans. So not a lot of people have all those things to draw upon necessarily. So again, just wanted to point that out. There's some good luck involved. We both had pretty good health, my wife and I. The investment returns, I started investing in 2011. So that's been a pretty good run of things in the markets. Even considering the recent pullback, that's a pretty good run to have started. That's nothing I could control. It just helped. And I just wanted to point out that I was born Canadian, which was actually, you might take for granted sometimes, but I taught, I did teach some social studies and you realize pretty quickly how much we can take for granted when you're discussing Canadian in the context of the world. And it is much easier to build wealth in a country that provides a great public school education for you, a subsidized post-secondary education that has lots of property rights laws, protects investors, protects savings accounts, all those different things. And then just from a purely mathematical standpoint, my wife and I don't have children. There's no current plans for children. And we don't have any judgment on anyone's decision on that one way or the other. I don't think anyone should tell anyone else what to do with this regard. But I just wanted to point out that that was a mathematical reality because I'm sure there'll be some parents watching this that are going to like look at my screen when we start talking numbers and just scream like, how did you do that? And the answer is like, obviously, if you don't have children, the math, it just gets easier. And that was a decision that was not made with finances in mind. That was just a... uh, personal decision for my wife and I that obviously then went on to have financial reverberations. So those are kind of the bullet points that I kind of threw together. Did that all make sense, Cornell? Yeah, that was fascinating. Okay. So the reason I'm finding it really fascinating too, is that I love kind of looking at people that have hit FI early on, like a case study, right? And 
obviously not everything that person X does, everyone watching can do as well. Those are going to be bits and pieces, but it's fun, I think, to talk to different five people who have hit it early and you see certain commonalities between and the things that aren't necessarily common across all of them. You can sort of pick and choose which ones may be a good fit for you. And then you can sort of use that to craft your own efficient way to get to five. So, you know, really sort of practical things here, which I'm loving. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. No one has a business like yours with all its strengths and challenges. This Small Business Month, you need a hiring partner that adapts to your needs. You need Indeed. With Indeed, you don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it with just Indeed. You can also find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. One thing that I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place easy because it does the hard work for you. Sponsor job and boom, Instant Match shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post. With Instant Match, you can start hiring fast. And according to Talent Nest 2019, Indeed delivers eight times more hires in Canada than all other job sites combined. So start hiring now with a $100 sponsored job credit to sponsor your job post at Indeed dot com slash build wealth. The offer is good for a limited time. Again, you can claim your $100 credit now at indeed.com slash build wealth. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. And now back to the show. I know we didn't really plan for this, Kyle, but what I thought might be really fun and also beneficial for everybody watching is, I mean, you interviewed quite a few people who have hit FI early on as well. And you have spoken to financial planners who work with people that have hit FI. And, and so you've kind of gone to pick their brains a bit in terms of what are their lists? Like you just gave us your list, but what are the lists on their end? And then I've also done the same. Did you want to maybe go through your list together and just kind of look at from your list, what are the things that seem to be very common in place amongst those who have hit FI early? So just as an example, your first point about low-cost index investing knowledge, that I would say has been pretty much unanimous for at least everyone that I've talked to in the FI space, where they're pretty much all low-cost index investors. I mean, uh, none of them you, are like crypto masters. None of them are day traders. In, you might run into a few people like that, now who are like, it's highly unlikely we would have interviewed them, but I know there are people out there that hit FI by like investing in tech early or investing in crypto early. I do wonder to what degree people are publicizing like, I remember this story will explain a little bit about my parents and my upbringing. My dad, we never went to the casino ever. Like my parents were not gambling people. I think we'd go to like these little fundraiser things. And that was both the extent of our gambling, which was essentially giving money to a charity at that point, playing bingo or whatever. But I remember my dad always say, Kyle, people are always very quick to tell you about their gambling wins but they'll never tell you about their losses. Mm -hmm. And those beautiful casinos don't build themselves. And it was like, that's so true. And so I feel like, you know, the crypto folks might be a little bit like that, where you only hear the good times. You don't necessarily hear about, oh yeah, they had to go back to work after their portfolio melted or whatever. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I think too, like there's there's some people that were, let's say they got an early, I read an interesting book about a lady who, I guess her husband was early on in Microsoft and he got some shares by working in the company. And or no, she was in Microsoft, I think, and he was in Amazon, like really early on. So they basically got an early, got stock options, and just we all know how things went with those companies. And now, you know, like multimillionaire, set for life, that kind of a thing. And so there are these different paths to FI, 
But I think, at least in my experience, the reason why I did the index investing route, you did the index investing route, and why literally everyone I've talked to <laughs> that I've hit five have done the, that kind of route is, or just about everyone, is because it's repeatable, right? So I mean, yes, maybe your things work out well for you. And like, obviously, these people that, you know, they got an early working for Amazon or whatever, obviously, they had to work hard to get that job. They had to work hard while they were there. So I'm not saying like, oh, this is just a lottery ticket winner. Like, they had to sacrifice too. But I mean, like, if I was like, hey, I want to go model that and do that in my life. Well, that's not as repeatable of a thing because you got to find right. a company. There is some luck involved, right? Whereas with index investing, anybody with willingness to learn, I would argue, can do that and implement it. Mm -hmm. And if they just stick with it, you know, they can actually hit five pretty early. So I think that's maybe, I don't know. So I really want to kind of highlight that. Do you have anything to add on that front, Kyle? No, I think you hit it bang on there, Cornell. That that's probably the easiest repeatable thing to do, where you, once you get the terminology down and you kind of understand, you'll have more conviction in it. And yeah, that's pretty widespread. I agree. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned work ethic, and that's kind of merged as well, I think, with side hustles, right? So you had side hustle with the writing. I remember you wrote a book that actually all Access Pass holders get to have for free. And this book, like, so I guess you wrote this and it got published and everything in when you were in your 20s, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. We actually self-published after a very, very cool conversation with David Chilton, who I sent an email to and I never dreamt he'd respond. And he actually called me. Like That's I cool. tossed my phone number and, e and emailed down and just said, you know, whatever you'd be willing to, whatever help you'd be willing to provide, sir, would be much appreciated. And he called me, talked. We, I he did the talking, I did the listening for about ten minutes. Then we had one more follow up ten minute call, and he convinced me to go with. Didn't want any money from me. Didn't want any partnership or equity or anything like that. Just wanted to steer me towards independent publishing. So that's what we did. It worked out pretty well. And yeah, so we wrote a book, More Money for Beer and Textbooks, which I feel like holds up pretty well if you read it today. There's obviously been some inflation. It's a guide designed to help university or post-secondary students in Canada. And I feel like it holds up pretty well. Obviously, the numbers are a little on the low side, seeing as how we wrote it a while ago now. But yeah, definitely did that. And I think more than the money that we actually made from the book for now, I think what that did is it really helped us like meet people like David Chilton and like guys like Rob Carrick and women like Ellen Roseman, who they kind of would take you seriously. They're like, okay, this guy's willing to put in a little bit of time, refine his craft a little bit, and wants to help people. Awesome. Yeah. And I mean, that book was in chapters. I mean, this is a very real big thing that you accomplished. Very impressive, especially in your 20s. So I, that's a really good example of, because I think someone can just read work ethic and like, oh yeah, I've got work ethic. I mean, everyone will probably say that they have work ethic, right? But I wanted to sort of highlight and emphasize that it's not just that you don't slack at your job. You kind of went that extra level and did this sort of side hustle thing and building those relationships in your 20s, right? Which I think is a really big deal. And and I see that being a common thing amongst other five people. Like we both you and I have interviewed Bryce and Christy, who are Canada's youngest retirees. I mean, they also had they, you know, they were doing writing as well, right? That's another, they had high paying jobs, but they were also trying to do stuff on the side with a book. You know, for myself, I had a, like a rock climbing training business that I ran before the podcast even existed. So, you know, some more like online business, video training, that kind of stuff. So yeah, I do see that pretty frequently where it's like, you've got your job, you try to make as much money there, but you know, instead of just watching Netflix at night when you're tired from work, you just kind of suck it up and you just work on building that extra revenue stream. And I know for us, like eventually it got to the point where 
the money that the, our little side hustle business, it wasn't making a lot, but it was enough where if we want to go out to eat or something to a restaurant, the side business basically made enough where it would cover that. And so that's what allowed us to basically invest one of our salaries fully, pretty much, you know, into hitting our fine number quicker because the side hustle was basically eventually was paying for all our kind of fun things that, you know, extracurricular activities that wasn't draining our cash flow from the job. So yeah, I definitely see that as a pretty common thing as well. Yeah, those would be the more common ones, along with maybe the commitment to saving versus spending Cornell. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty clear. Like, I think if you want to retire somewhat comfortably between 55 and 65, I think the rule of thumb saving about 15% of your income, depending what your income is, what your plans are, blah, blah, blah. I think that'll get you there for most Canadians. But if you want to retire or reach financial independence like before 40, you've got to be looking at a pretty aggressive savings rate. Like, I got to think, and again, it, this is why it helps to be, to meet your partner in life quite young, just in terms of like being able to, like you say, save one, one whole salary. That's not a reality or that's not an option for a lot of Canadians. But yeah, obviously the savings rates, I mean, I never actually calculated what our savings rate was at different times, but it was, Definitely, I would say north of 50%. Nice. Most of the time, for sure, after about 2014, it would have been. But I know that there are people, like I think Bryce and Christy were like north of 70%, if I'm not mistaken. So I think that commitment to early savings, I mean, just it's a mathematical, you'd either have to make like 200,000 plus a year, or you have to have a commitment to savings, which again, it's not for everyone. I don't even advise it for some people. But if you want to hit that early FI number, I think that would be something you'd have to have in common, right? Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, I think memory serves with Bryce and Christy. I remember at one point they were basically each making like six, like low six figures, right? And so, but yeah. they're together. So dual income, no kids, each making six figures. And they didn't get that right out of university, I don't believe, but like, you know, they kind of got to that. And then what happens with a lot of people, and we hear this a lot, is you get this sort of lifestyle creep, right? We're now, oh, I'm making more money. So now I'm going to spend more every month because I have money now. We're going to upgrade our cars, et cetera, et cetera. And so that takes an, a very conscious decision, I think, to say, no, we're not going to upgrade our car. We're going to stick with what we have. And instead, we're going to plow this raise into hitting five quicker, right? Hit, plowing into index funds, right? Like That's what they did. That's what we did. That's what you sounds you guys did as well. That seems to be a very common thing, right? Where it's very easy to just kind of, hey, I deserve this, I earn this, I'm gonna spend it. And it's like, okay, and that's fine. No guilt if that's if you choose to do that. We're not judging, but it's more like if you wanna hit that fine number quicker, the mathematical reality is that something's gotta give, right? That money has to come from mm -hmm. somewhere. So it's gonna come from that new car we didn't get. And instead we're plowing it into index funds. I just want to point out real quick, Cornell, that the rest, everything else on the list is probably pretty unique, each individual. And so I just wanted to point out like one more time before I go into like, I start talking about me and myself. I just wanted to one more time just say like our path, Molly and I's path to financial independence may have been easier. There may have been a straighter road than what a lot of people have. And so I just want to point out like, I don't know how to become financially independent without the social capital that I grew up with. I think that would be a lot harder. So I just want to point out the role that luck plays to some degree. And just privilege, if you want to call it. I know that the phrase privilege has a lot of like political baggage around it these days, but like that's frankly what I feel that I had. And, you know, even like I know that mathematically speaking, I would be averse if I didn't point out that I'm a white Caucasian male in North America. So that obviously didn't hurt 
I honestly don't feel like that was a major impact on me getting hired as a teacher necessarily. But I think obviously it helped me in a wide variety of ways that I'm probably not even fully aware of, frankly. So I just wanted to point all these things out before I say like, look what I did. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can do it too, because I think there's so many like snake oil salesmen out there that just ignore these sort of systemic things. So anyway, that aside, yeah, let's move on to some nuts and bolts of what we did and what helped us. Sounds good. Let's do it. So I think one of the more unique things for me is that I grew up very rural. And when you tell most Canadians, like I I work here with a fellow who considers himself growing up rural. He grew up in Barrie, Ontario. Now that was the Barrie of 30 years ago, not the Barrie of today. But he considers that rural. He's like, oh, I could walk to essentially the forest. But like to me, Barrie in Manitoba's context, Barrie would be like the second biggest city in the province. So this was actually the city or the, the hamlet that I grew up in, South Junction, Manitoba. That is the entire town, what you're looking at there. We lived across from the South Junction Community Ball Club and I cut that lawn. I basically cut lawn for the circle I'm creating here. I basically cut all of that lawn at one point when I was in grade 9, 10, 11, 12, uh, just to give you an idea. And that was a big key in my wife and I. My wife grew up in a similar small town near Lake of the Woods. And it was key for a couple of reasons. One is people are just naturally more frugal in small towns. Not everyone. I'm just saying on average, like we had a huge vegetable garden. Could we have bought vegetables for like a very small percentage of my mom's nursing salary? Absolutely. Was it instilled in us that like a vegetable garden was a great way to like build character and like the vegetables just tasted better, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, that's absolutely true. So there was that. But even more than that, it was we were not scared then to pursue careers in rural settings, which I really, really think is ignored in Canada. I'm astonished at the complete inability of the media to cover any other topic than living in Canada's major cities. It blows my mind. And I realized that, hey, just like I was a little intimidated of living in a downtown urban environment, lots of people are intimidated by living in a small town, but and it's not for everyone. But I just think like, I know that mathematically, that was a reason why I was able to build wealth and my wife and I were able to build wealth. And not everyone has that. So after growing up in such a small town, the flip side of that is that one of the increased costs is attending school because obviously you can. I don't know, Cornell, did you live at home while you attended post-secondary? I did. Yeah. That helped us as, as well. Yeah. Like I'm in Kitchener, which is right next to Waterloo. And I went to Laurier, which is in Waterloo. So yeah, I bought like a little, we bought a little scooter, like, you know, that little moped nice. kind of thing, which That's I think cool. at that time to fill up the tank, it was like $4 or something crazy because it's just a little thing, right? And I would take that. And yeah, the amount of money saved on residence and everything was amazing. Like my whole first year was paid for just in scholarships, just because there was no residence to pay for, right? So yeah, living at home was a huge help. Yeah, that's definitely the one area that urban living will help you out. And I know some people, they don't want to live at home as they go to school, or maybe their parents are ready for them to get out under their feet. Again, these are all variables that sort of transcend money. But I'm just saying that this is one of the few areas where like rural living is way, way cheaper and growing more cheaper than urban living every day. However, when it comes to school, like I used to laugh at the students who were really, really upset about like domestic students' tuition and just that they were so angry at this. And us rural kids would be like, you have no idea. The tuition is only like maybe a quarter of our total costs. 
when you factor in like all the transport, living in residence, even just things like food are so much more expensive if you're either buying a meal plan or grocery shopping for one as opposed to grocery shopping for a family. Like probably my guess is most folks that live at home, most students live at home probably don't pay a lot for groceries, maybe like contribute a little generally towards rent. I'm not sure how everyone works that out. But yeah, so I did this real quick. So coming out of university, just to give you an idea, I had no debt of any kind. I also had basically no money in my bank account. I did enjoy having a good time. And if I added up all the money I spent at... If I would have invested the money that I spent at the student bar on campus, I probably would have reached FI like three years earlier. (laughs) Uh, given Given the investment returns that would have accumulated since then. And your yeah, liver would have been sense. much healthier too, right? Yeah, that's a possibility <laughs> as well. Yeah, but So all that to say, I had a pretty good time. I don't want to pretend I didn't. And there's a reason why we put a beer on the cover of a book that we wrote. But yeah, that was kind of where I was coming out of university. I had no debt. But basically, my net worth, I guess it might have been like slightly above zero because I did have a car at that point. But basically, it was like my car and my like used laptop would have been my the sum total of my net worth. So how did I pay for school? I just created a quick chart here. My parents were able to save through RESPs, which I was very thankful for. And then I had saved some money up in high school through working various jobs. I told you about grass cutting. I did some lifeguarding. I worked two or three nights a week at the local gas station, the local gas station in my little small town that had one gas station. And I think key in building work ethic too, because I actually felt that I was more prepared for the demands of post-secondary than a lot of students were just because I was forced to schedule my time a lot more in high school due to sports and work. So anyway, I'd saved some money in high school. I had obviously some scholarships coming out of high school, like you were saying, Cornell, but I also applied for and got some pretty cool scholarships along the way. A lot of them, I think I've said this on one other session, one of my tips for scholarships was just become friends with the people at your student finance office. So there's various different names that different universities will call it. But there's lots of scholarships that only have like two or three applicants, if anyone at all. And so sometimes I wouldn't really fit. But if I just kind of slanted it, I would never lie, but I would emphasize certain parts of my story. And if there was no one else to get like the third place award, they would just give me like the third place $500 scholarship (laughs) or bursary, which they probably did not envision me when they created it. But if there's only four applicants and they're giving out three awards, sometimes you'd luck out. So I did pretty well on that. And then for summer jobs and part-time work during the school year, I was able to get a pretty well-paying job with Canada Border Services and then do some side work as well because that was like 12-hour shift work. So you'd have like several days off. And then I would do various different things in my small town, construction or whatever the case may be, a couple days a week other than that. So I did pretty well. My little brother actually managed to save money going through university because he was firefighter he was one of these students that fought forest fires in the summer. And mm-hmm. so his summer was like awful. He'd spend his summer like sleeping in a tent, getting eaten by mosquitoes in the middle of a bush burning somewhere. But he would make like 30 grand in the summer. Wow. Uh, and this was back like 10 years ago. So yeah. So anyway, that's how I got through school. So just to give you an idea, in terms of wealth building, I did not have any debts coming out of school. I talked, this is my wife and I, a quick trip this summer that was really cool. And obviously, as I said earlier, mathematically speaking, folks who are married at younger ages or find their partner at younger ages, it's easier to build wealth. You have a roommate, et cetera, et cetera. So I won't belabor the point as I already talked about it, but that obviously was a key. I'm just kind of going chronologically here. 
through different stages of life. And obviously, like I said, I'm quite fortunate. Now, this is what I mean by living rural being a key. So this is a picture of our first home that we bought. And we ended up buying it. So this is actually when I decided to learn about personal finance, Cornell, because this other small town in Manitoba that my wife and I moved to was it actually had hardly anywhere to rent. So because the options were so few for renting, it actually made more sense to buy a home, which I had not even thought about. And then I quickly found out that like none of my friends, all of whom had multiple university degrees between them, nobody actually knew the logistics of buying a house. And I was like, okay, this is crazy. Like Obviously, we say we need to teach this at schools, and I'm a big proponent of that. But at that point in my life, I was just like, well, all right. Nobody knows how. I guess I will go on the internet and find this out. And I quickly found out that there was a lot of people that didn't know how. So anyway, this was a house that I bought. It had two bedrooms up top, one bedroom below. It was a basic, I think it was 980 square feet, if I remember correctly, with a huge detached garage because it was owned by a trades fellow before me. Huge lot. There's a whole extra lot there on the left that you can't really see. And this is what you could buy in 2010. This house today probably wouldn't be that much more expensive. You probably could get it for 140 or 150,000, I would say, Canadian. Now that said, as everyone is like scurrying to move to this town, Bertle, Manitoba is the town that we moved to. The closest Walmart was, now that I think about it, was probably about 140 kilometers away. Wow. Just to give an idea, it's not like Northern Canada remote, but it's pretty remote. It's a little community on the Yellowhead Highway on 16 Highway. It's a farming community and the lifestyle was great. I went for a jog right right outside of this house was a dirt road, that a dirt service road that just serviced farmyards. And I could go for a jog on a nice dirt road for any time I wanted out my door. There was lots of you know hunting, fishing, if that's your thing. But obviously, like if you were wanting to go to the clubs or you wanted to see a world-class art scene, this is not the GTA. So <laughs> trade-offs. But yeah, I don't know. Had you... Actually, I'm curious, Cornell, like Kitchener, did you consider yourself rural? Growing no. up? Right with Toronto right next door there? Or? No, no, I wouldn't consider myself... No, Kitchener was always a city, just much smaller than Toronto. But no, no, I would never consider myself rural. This is what you're showing here. This is it to me. <laughs> so I'm just curious, like, if anyone around you in your like universe had even considered moving to a rural area like this? Definitely not. I've never <laughs> ever had a conversation with any acquaintance, friend, family member, anything where they're like, hey, you know what? I was thinking of moving out there. Yeah, it was very different. The conversation was more so, oh, well, GTA, because that's where the jobs are, right? That was sort of the the default where if you're straight out of school, that's where the jobs are. So that's where you go. And yeah, that was kind of the most common thing that I saw. And obviously, depending what field you're in, there that is a reality that a lot of jobs are kind of centered around the major cities. But more and more, as we see more work from home sort of scenarios, or you can get creative if you can work from home sort of four days a week, maybe going to the city the night before and stay with a friend, or maybe you can work that for two or three years, little hybrid things like that work. I should also point out in this small town specifically, the winters are cold even for Canada. Like, Manitoba winters are kind of famous for a reason. But I remember this one talk I gave in Toronto and it was kind of like someone asked me like how I was able to do this and like what my home payments looked like. And I actually said, I'm pretty sure there's parking spots in this city that are more expensive than my house. <laughs> and people were like, ha ha ha, good joke. And I'm like, no, like I'm serious. Like there are parking spots down here that have like 
cars that are triple the cost of my house parked in them that are like basically the mortgage payment on my house would be your monthly payment for this parking spot. And they were like, wow, that's crazy. And then no one asked me later for details on moving. So anyway, (laughs) it's kind of a unique quirk that was really able to help us save. And the long winters actually probably helped build wealth too, because that's when I started blogging and freelance writing. So that's kind of just a random. Yeah, you're at home, right? And yeah, that makes total sense. I get a lot of questions from listeners of the show. If I know of a good organization or person that can help them optimize their finances, do their financial planning, and answer any questions that they may have. I spend a lot of time researching on who I can actually wholeheartedly recommend and use myself when it comes to financial coaching. And as you know, there is a lot of conflict of interest here in Canada where you can easily fall into the trap of going with a financial planner or financial advisor, thinking that they have your best interest at heart, but really they're just trying to persuade you to buy some expensive investment product from them so that they can earn their hefty commission. So the organization that I personally use and recommend for coaching, financial planning, and optimization is called Enriched Academy. They are as legitimate as it gets. They actually coach Canadian police officers and have actually been implemented by the government of Alberta to be in their schools teaching financial literacy. And they're already in over 400 schools and colleges. They don't sell any investment products, so they are totally unbiased, which is a key reason why I decided to take part in their coaching myself, as their advice is 100% geared towards benefiting you, as opposed to trying to earn some commission on the side. So the special page that they set up for Build Wealth Canada listeners to get a free one-on-one live assessment call is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash enriched. That's buildwealthcanada.ca ca slash enriched. Give it a shot. It's free. There's no obligation or anything like that if you try them and don't think it's a good fit. I hope you give it a shot. And now back to the show. Yeah, the whole working from home thing transition, that seems like a hack that wasn't as available back when you and I started, but that is very much available now. Like, So there's definitely parts where, like you said before, that you and I got lucky in terms of the market returns, for example. Things worked out there. Houses were cheaper as well. Right? So there are definitely some things that kind of went our way like 100%. But one thing that I think if I was to do it all over again now, present day, if I was straight out of school again, the whole remote work thing sounds really, really nice, right? Because typically, I mean, the things that one of the major drivers that increases property values is employment nearby. And that was the truth. And that's, I guess, still is the truth. But now that you can do all this remote work, and that's kind of like the norm for some companies, you can totally save so much money by not having to get that house in the GTA anymore, right? And I mean, with the, the way technology has progressed, I mean, you could be working for a company in Europe, right? Like, like I was talking to Passive, one of the sponsors of the podcast and one of the sponsors of the show. And I mean, one of their founders and his wife, they moved to France. And you know, the rest of the sure. company is out in Eastern Canada, right? And that's fine now. That's not crazy at all. That's normal for a lot of companies. And you can do that now, right? And so just, I don't know, I think it's a really cool kind of like hack, I'll call it, I guess, that wasn't yeah. available to us. But I think it's so neat how just, you know, high internet speeds and all this kind of stuff. And then just because of COVID, you know, as horrible as it was, it did kind of push companies to make, to accommodate employees working from home. And I mean, now we sort of get to, I guess, benefit from that that shift, that change, where you no longer have to be, you know, you don't have to commute for an hour necessarily in a lot of cases. Whereas like, I don't know, when I was fresh out of school, it's like commute was just what you did. You just suck it up and you have to do it a lot of the time. So yeah, very interesting. Yeah. And like, and 
you know, it's working remotely, I think, is going to appeal to a lot of folks who grew up very urban and have no hope. The last two weeks, the only headlines I've seen in the newspaper are young people will never be able to afford houses in Canada. And then it goes on to say, oh, actually, what we meant is in Toronto, well, the GTA in general, and Vancouver, and like maybe to some degree, Montreal, Halifax, and Calgary, maybe. Those three cities are on the edge. And they're like, well, that's all of Canada. They're like, well, no, actually, it's not. (laughs) But thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Now, again, I realize there's trade-offs here, but like, man, there are good things. There are positive trade-offs aside from housing prices. Like, I always tell people, like, just watch a few episodes of Corner Gas. If you've ever seen the Corner Gas show, it's on like every half hour on the Comedy Network, if you watch the Comedy Network. You know, there are some positive trade-offs. And I just further wanted to say, you know, I think you talk about hacks, Cornell. I still think the biggest hack, if you want to build wealth as a young person, is to look at the trades and look at the trades and live in rural areas. Because I had students mm. that would have been living in a house just like mine that they paid, you know, a hundred to 140000 for a really nice house. That house, I don't even have any idea. Like even in Waterloo, Cornell, what does a 980 square foot bungalow go for with a finished basement and an extra lot attached? Like it's got to be a million, no? I haven't really been tracking the prices. It's probably, I would think it's it's not that high, I don't think, but it's getting up there. It's yeah, it's pretty, especially because it's a pretty and, big employment area now as well. Yeah, and Hamilton or the, and GTA maybe be looking at at a seven figure price, but like, there's kids that are doing this, and I say kids because they're literally like 20 years old who are in the trades and they work their way through. They get their ticket. They're earning just as much as I was as a teacher at 20 years old, 21 years old. And if they knew how to invest properly, they would retire. They could hit FI sooner than you and I did. I think that's fair to say. So anyway, just a yeah. random aside. Yeah, yeah, just not pigeonhole yourself into like, oh, this is the career because of whatever reason you've been given as a kid. (laughs) Like just have an open mind and explore these other options and not just go with these defaults, these sort of default mindsets, which I think too, I mean, obviously most parents, I would say, want the best for their kids, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the parent is always right (laughs) because they're coming from it from a different angle from their generation where they grow up. Like that's their frame of reference. That's their experience. These days, I mean, things have changed so much since then. So, I mean, like I was never even, no one ever suggested that I go into the trades, let's say, right, uh, going up. But it's like, I mean, why not expose yourself to that, right? You don't have to go the university route and need to get your bachelor's no matter what. And like, like that's not the only path. But when I was growing up, that seemed like, well, no, of course, that's what you do. Like that's just like a default. But I think just to keep an open mind about some of this stuff, because there's like these sort of like traditional advice then there's like, okay, well, let's actually look at the economics here. And you could actually be in really, really good shape, even ahead of someone that did do the more traditional route, like what you were saying. Way more. Like I took five years, which is the minimum that you in Manitoba can go through and get your Bachelor of Arts and then Bachelor of Education. And I worked pretty hard, I think, and had a lot of fortunate luck and parental help in getting to a net worth of zero and not a negative net wealth at 22 years old. My students, there's many of them have net worths. They're driving new vehicles. These kids who they took pipe fitting while they were in high school or carpentry or machining, millwrights. And these young adults, I guess, at the age of 22, I already sound old talking about these kids. They're earning, I would say, their net worth, some of them, they're probably looking at $150,000, $200,000 of net worth by the end of their 22nd year, whereas I was at zero. Mm-hmm. So like, that's just the reality of it that maybe deserves a whole nother session on its own one day. 
for sure. So to illustrate, Cornell, some of my spending choices, I just thought I'd show that this was my first car. This isn't actually it. I couldn't actually find any pictures of our old family van. But my parents basically gave me our old family van. I had a car that I think I used my first two years out. And then my brother was going to buy a car. And I said, you know what? I want to boost my savings rate to buy a new vehicle. So I gave him my car. And in return, my parents gave me their van. And so I drove this van around. It was great for a teacher that was coaching basketball because I could throw like my half my team in the van and just go to whatever tournament we were playing in. But like I was driving, it was probably 10 or 12-year-old Dodge Caravan. Yeah, admittedly, I wasn't trying to impress anyone or whatever, but like that was the reality. Like, could I have afforded a much better car? Like, yeah, probably. I probably could have bought a fifty or sixty thousand dollar vehicle pretty comfortably in terms of making the monthly payments if I stretched it out. But yeah, what with Dodge Caravan? That's actually that's actually what I drive now, Kyle. We drive. There you go. We have one Uh, car in our family, and it's a Dodge Caravan. It's amazing. I I can fit my bike, my mountain bike in there. I can fit the kids in there. It's amazing. And guess what? If it gets a dent in it, you don't need to freak out, right? Oh, yeah. Because you're like, oh, it's not a million dollar car. So like, exactly. Life will go on. You actually get yeah. less anxiety with a cheaper car because when exactly. someone inevitably bumps it in the parking lot with a cart or whatever, you're just like, oh, that's too bad. All right. Like on with my day. Or <laughs> that's pretty much it. Tears the fabric somehow with something or whatever. Yeah, exactly. We also have so young kids. Is- so you just don't expect things to be pristine condition. That yeah, with yeah. young kids. Yeah. <laughs> This is actually the vehicle. It's now officially my parents' vehicle, but this vehicle is still running. So we would have bought this in, I think it was 2014, 2013, 2014. It's a Hyundai Elantra. It's a great little car. It was like, at the time, I want to say it beat the Corolla and the Civic in terms of mileage. And it had a better warranty. So that was my... Actually, at the time, I'm not sure if this is still the case, but Hyundai actually had the best warranty of all the brands in Canada. Hyundai and I want to say Mitsubishi had the, were the two that had the highest warranty. And so that's I bought this. It was a small car. We put a lot of miles on living rural. But if you just set the cruise and you have a very good car. Now, a lot of my buddies, especially my male friends, drove big pickup trucks, which was great because if I ever needed a pickup truck, I either just paid them for it or bought them a case of beer or helped them with one of their projects. And then I could borrow their pickup truck for the one or two times a year that I needed it. And that worked out pretty well for me. So it's a great car. It was new. We did buy new because I just wanted the feeling of being the first person to own it at the time. And it was kind of our treat for my wife and I. And she was driving to finish her Bachelor of Education degree at the time. So I wanted her to have a safe vehicle with all the new safety features and stuff. So anyway, just to illustrate sort of the spending habits. The good part about being a teacher is that your salary is always public if people know where to look, which it should be, Frank, because you're paid by the public. So there's no reason to hide it. This is the current one. I looked, I Googled Cornell to find my teacher salary. This is their current one. So when I would have started in the end of 2010, the 2010-2011 school year, I wanted to say my gross was about 48000 I was a class 5 teacher. And then I once I got my master's of education degree, which probably cost... Oh, I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of $20,000 of tuition. Then I would have been a class six teacher. So obviously, I would have ended at about $95,000 before I left. And obviously, taxes are a big part. But like my wife and I figured we were paying $4,000 combined in union dues every year. 
between the local union and the provincial union, just to give you an idea of how many deductions were on our paycheck. Hmm. So in terms of earning... That's it, not even contribution did, to your pension, right? That's just fees for the union, right. yeah? Yeah, exactly. Mm. And the long-term disability fees, because like, I'll just be real here. There are a lot of teachers that took advantage of it and they would be out for five to 10 years on long-term stress leave. And it really infuriated me and infuriates me to this day because there are people that genuinely need to take long-term help, whether it's physical or mental reasons that they can't make it to work. But it was dwarfed by the number of people I felt. I knew several people firsthand that were taking advantage of this. So this wasn't like hearsay. And anyway, so there's things like pension that will help you out. And like, I think my wife and I, before we left, I got to look at, I think we're in line to get an inflation adjusted in today's dollars, $1,300 a month, starting at age 55, the two of our pensions together. So that's working. I worked 10 years and she would have worked like, six years in the Manitoba public school system. So we do have some degree of a pension and extra pension waiting for us in addition to the Canadian pension plan. But yeah, there was many deductions, which obviously kind of tails into my next, let's go, I'm going to skip forward one slide here because total tax and deductions where we work today at Qatar Academy Doha are zero. When they told us this, I thought maybe they were stretching the truth, but we actually got our pay stubs and it was our base income, and then they give you a, a small amount for transportation allowance. And then it said deductions, zero. And then the rest of the money was in our account, which was <laughs> kind of crazy. And so that's obviously helped us a lot too, Cornell, in terms of building wealth, moving here to the Middle East in terms of this is our third year, and this will be our last year in the Middle East. But yeah, the two things, the income is tax-free, but also our portfolio was able to grow tax-free. So there's no capital gains and if you get the lifetime library pass, you can see last year I did a whole segment on living in Doha and the benefits of working, whether it's the UAE or Doha, Qatar, you can see how quickly you can build wealth if that's what you're up to. And then I'll go back one slide here, just in terms of salary side of things. We already talked about side hustles, Cornell. So here's like a few of the places that I did writing for or and or properties that I've owned at some point. I was writing for other people before side hustles was a phrase. I know a lot of people like four years later were like, oh, side hustles, side gigs, blah, 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 this and that. But yeah, just taking a second job, it was called at the time. And yeah, it definitely was busy. I remember there were a few times getting up at like 4.30 in the morning before my school day started to like finish a column for someone that I was on a deadline. So things like that, it wasn't easy, but it was manageable. And I got a kick out of doing it. Like you say, the money grew from cherry on top money to actually like, wow, okay, this could potentially one day replace my job as my main income. And it's nice to have that option, right? Where, okay, if you're getting kind of tired of your job, you want to switch, that kind of a thing. It's nice to have that other iron in the fire. And there's a good chance that second iron in the fire is something you actually enjoy doing it because that's something you've been doing kind of as a side hustle outside your job on weekends, evenings or early in the mornings, like you were saying, right? So there's a good chance you wouldn't have started doing that if you hated it. And so it's nice where right. that side hustle piece grows. And then eventually you at least have the option of quitting your day job and maybe doing this part-time or full-time, that kind of a thing. I've seen that as a very good path that some people have taken. And, and I can see it working really well for a lot of people. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think I like the free market aspect of it too, because coming from teaching where you're locked into the same salary grid, regardless of like how much effort you put into the job, mm-hmm. I think I really enjoyed the free market aspect of side gigs that you could negotiate. And if you did a great job, you could leverage yourself a little bit more, that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. Awesome. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, and then I thought maybe Cornell to finish up, maybe we talked a little bit about a sneak peek in my investment portfolio, even though it, it won't take very long. Because uh, <laughs> as you were saying at the top, like index investing, there wasn't, VEQT didn't exist back in 2011 when I first was able to save and invest a little bit of money. So back then to do an index investing portfolio, I think I had Canadian equity, Canadian bonds, and then I think I had an American equities and then an everything else equities and other developed nations equity. I want to say it's how I did it for back in. And then you can still do that and shave a few percentage points off. And actually, it makes sense inside our TFSAs and RSPs. And there's different sessions you can talk to at our summit. But I think you can do a lot worse. And I have this specific ETF in several of my accounts. VEQT and all equity ETF portfolio. I should say I had it in my accounts when I was in Canada. And when I go home to Canada, I will again have it in many of my accounts. And it's currently actually in my RSP account. The reason I just make that caveat is because there's... I'll explain right away. When you live abroad, there's kind of a unique opportunity. But for most Canadians, honestly, if you just take the QT, Rob Engin, I know is big on this too, and you just buy it in every account with all of your money in TFSAs, RSPs, non-registered, you're going to get like 90% of the gains with no headings. And if you're cool with like that last 10, 15%, it's not even 15, it's like less than 10%, like that you'll be saving by going this route. Man, just buying VEQT rinse and repeat in your younger years, you could do a lot worse. So I think that's probably what I'd recommend to most people. But yeah, I do remember when the all-in-one ETFs came out. I think maybe the robo-advisors kind of like leveraged or inspired the the vanguards of the world to come out with these. Hey, Cornell? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I remember when you and I started investing, you pretty much, if you wanted the really low fees, you had to buy the individual ETFs. Which I still do for the like, just like get the absolute lowest MER and, and tax efficiency, but you totally don't have to do it. And most people, with, especially if your portfolio is not, I don't know, like, what do you say, Kyle? Like, I usually use 200,000. Like, I'm like, if it's under, if your portfolio is under 200,000, just get an asset allocation ETF. Like, obviously, do your due diligence and all that. But I mean, all the extra work that's required to like fine tune, you optimize it, it's not really worth it until your portfolio is in the like hundreds and hundreds of thousands kind of thing. I don't know. So, 200K is kind of the one that I use. What number do you like to use, Kyle? Do you have a number? I think I've even told people like 500,000 yeah. before. I guess it depends on your like your GAF factor, <laughs> like how much you want that extra 0.2% or whatever it would be. I guess, yeah, it wouldn't even be 0.2. You'd be probably averaging about a 0.15% MER Cornell, would you say? Yeah, like mine's a little bit lower than that because like I go even further, like I do the whole buying VTI in my RSP to avoid the withholding yeah, tax. Yeah. Like I do that whole extra bonus thing. So that's like really far. So far you tuned. might get it down to like, you might actually get down to like 0.1%. Y- yeah. Like it's a little bit over 0.1. It's less than 0.15. It's more than 0.1. I'd have to pull up my spreadsheet what it is, so but I mean. It would be like $13 or something like that on every 10,000 then would be yeah. basically what you're. Yeah. Again, the very small amounts where it's not worth it if your portfolio is like like if anyone watching this is like just getting into it, right? And so then your portfolio is mm-hmm. probably under 100K. 
then it's like, look, just do yourself a favor and just yeah. get an asset allocation ETF. Focus on making money at that yeah. point and yeah. savings rate. Yeah. So real quick, I just want to illustrate because I don't want to be one of these guys that says, here's what I recommend for you, but I do something different. Hmm. So this is an example. I do still have like a broad ETF. Like I use VCN actually to offset, sorry, VXC rather, to offset my Canadian content. But when you're abroad, if you keep your investments in Canada and you're still trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange, if you use the Horizons products, and again, I talked about this last year, so it might be worth your time if you're interested in this. It's kind of a niche to look to buy the Lifetime Library Pass and take a look at, at my session last year. But what this ETF does is it basically turns dividends into capital gains. And what I mean by that is it's called a swap ETF. And so each year, Horizons takes a look at like how, what the overall gain was, capital gains and ETFs, and it just swaps it. It's a little bit complicated, but through a synthetic process, it basically turns your dividend income into a capital gain. And the reason this is so great for expats is that there are countries like Qatar where there's no capital gains taxes. So essentially, on this ETF, I pay no tax of any kind, which is a pretty great way which to do it. pretty optimized, I would argue. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. And actually, the HXS ETF, I haven't bought much of it because you know the US market is not something I really wanted to dive into head first right now or overweight in my portfolio. But HXS actually does the same thing for the S&P 500, mm-hmm. where it, it's just a swap-based ETF. So you don't have to pay all those little fees and dividend taxes and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I hold that one in my little... corporate account for the same... It, I'll right, give that in a sec, but, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so to Kyle's point, so in his case, he uses the Horizons ETFs because some of their ETFs, I believe it's not all of them, right? I believe it's just some of them have that unique, that corporate class swap structure thing where, like you said, turns the dividends into capital gains. And so, yeah, Kyle mentioned that if you're doing the expat thing, that's one use case that where he pays basically no tax. The other use case that I use personally is in the corporate account. Again, when you get into investing within the corporation in terms of like on the open markets, it gets really complicated and it's very kind of situational. So definitely have your accountant, you know, crunch on little numbers, run the scenarios, do the analysis. But for me personally, it makes sense to also use the horizons just in that corporate account because you get dinged very heavily on dividends. And so you're much better off, in my scenario at least, in my situation, to have it as capital gains instead. And then the other use case that I see it used quite a bit is for people investing in their taxable accounts if they are receiving some sort of government benefits. So whether it's Canada Child mm-hmm. Benefit, OAS, or GIS, basically any sort of benefit that you get from the government where the government gives you money, but they will claw it back depending on your income. So when you get dividend income, that counts as income. In fact, if it's a Canadian one, it'll actually get grossed up as well. So you're actually paying tax on more than you actually received in dividends from Canadian equities. So for people that are, you know, Let's say they're especially if you're you're retired, you're getting these government benefits. You know there are some tax optimization strategies there where okay, you're still invested in the markets. Let's say in your taxable account, but you can use these horizons once to get capital gains instead of dividends because then you get less of a clawback. These are a little bit controversial. I have gotten some emails in the past from people saying, you know, how dare you use or how dare you even talk about these like tax strategies for people because you should be paying the tax. You know, that's the way it's been intended, blah, 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 to, you know, how do you optimize to maximize the benefits you're getting? So look, this is, I'm not going to, you know, play police here, right? It, it's more, look, there are tax optimization strategies. They are legal. Like if you want to take capital gains instead of dividends, 
some people will not like that at all because they're just like, no, the government said I should get clawed back this amount. That's what I want to get clawed back, even though that's less money in my pocket. And others will say, well, no, I'm still playing within the rules. The government created these rules. I'm not breaking any laws. And so I'm going to do any tax optimizations that I can that the government allows me to do. So I am going to use the strategy. So I didn't want to just call that out because some people get very upset about like, you know, anything in terms of like maximizing Canada child benefit or OAS, you know, that can be a sensitive subject. So I just want to mention that. But just so you know, this is things available legally on the menu. And it's up to you to decide whether it applies to your situation and whether you actually want to do it, right? You know, for whatever reasons you have, whether it's ethical or otherwise. So I'll end it at that. But I did want to mention those two other use cases because not everyone is an expat like Kyle, but there is still that is a rabbit hole. You may want to consider going down if you are investing within your corporation and if you are investing in a taxable account and you are getting some sort of government benefits. So I'll, I'll leave it at that, but just wanted to kind of raise that flag because that is something that is a fun point of optimization for some people. Yeah. Please yeah, continue, Kyle. Sum that up. <laughs> no, no, that was a great summation of exactly. And again, if you want to hear more about this, Cornell and I did quite a deep dive into it. I believe it was last year mm-hmm. as one of the, like, I think 160 plus sessions that you'll get if you get the lifetime library pass. And yeah, so basically with my investment portfolio, I just wanted to underline that it was boring, that it's buy the whole haystack and don't try to pick the needle in the haystack, so to speak. I don't have any crypto or I didn't buy any Tesla back 15 years ago or anything like that. This is how it looks, the sneak peek, so to speak. And so I thought to finish up here, Cornell, I would just kind of give like a rough timeline in terms of financial independence. So I got my first job. I decided to start the timeline in 1998. I got my first job (laughs) cutting grass. I was 11 years old, earned my first dollar. It was definitely under the table, tax-free cash at the time. (laughs) You're going on record here, Kyle. I don't know if you ever want to run for office. I don't know. (laughs) If the CRA comes calling for my $25, I guess I would have definitely been under the personal exemption now that I think about it. There we go. (laughs) So 2005, that didn't used to look so far away. Obviously, it's looking further and further into the past these days. But yeah, 2005, graduated high school. Pre the big short, I met my partner for life, Molly, in 2008, which obviously worked out super well for me. I shouldn't say I actually met her a little bit earlier, but began dating Molly in 2008, just to give you an idea of sort of how long we've been together. Got my Bachelor of Education in 2010 and my first teaching contract. 2011, I started the gigs there that we we outlined. Molly graduated with her Bachelor of Education and began teaching in 2013. In 2016, I got my Master's of Ed. So that those two or three years were pretty busy with trying to write columns and also do a master's degree while teaching full-time. I didn't make the best health choices probably <laughs> at that point in my life. I'm much more balanced now. But anyway, just to give the full picture... By 2017, at that point, my online income actually had surpassed my teaching income. So I was able to get fairly aggressive with how much I was saving at that point. And then 2020, we moved here to Qatar and obviously began to live an international life at that point. And by 2022, we reached lean financial independence, which is what I just described. And then looking forward, 2013... We're not sure where we're going to eventually settle in Canada. We're still working that out. But for the time being, I think we're just going to bounce around and embrace this digital nomad life. Like I said, I've been interviewing people about it for two or three years now. So I'm excited. I feel like I'm one of the most prepared first-time digital nomads that there could possibly be. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that, Kyle. That was really cool. I love case studies like this and showing us actually what you've done. 
and what you're doing as opposed to just kind of some theory that anybody can you know, put together from reading a bunch of books. So it's always fun to get the real thing. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing all this. Yeah, it was definitely one of the more awkward things I've done. So <laughs> hopefully no one in my small rural area buys the All Access Pass <laughs> and finds this and likes to needle me about it. But yeah, aside from that, uh, it was a great part now. Awesome. People awesome. Got some value from it. Great. And yeah, definitely check out the Lifetime Library. Like Kyle said, we, some, we touched on some of the more advanced topics as well. And we covered a lot of them in the previous years. So in the Lifetime Library, you'll have basically access to all past years of the summit, all the talks, everything. So it's just an absolute treasure trove of just knowledge and best practices. You know, other really smart people that we've interviewed who have been optimizing this for years. So yeah, I hope you guys check that out. And Kyle, thanks so much for sharing and giving us the inside scoop under the hood of Kyle and how we did it. And yeah, thanks to everybody for watching. Thanks, Bruno. All right, take care. All right, a big thanks to Kyle Prevo for sharing his experience and his lessons learned along the way so that we can apply it to our own lives and our own situation as well. And also a big thanks to our sponsor, Indeed, for sponsoring this episode. Nobody has a business like yours with all its strengths and challenges. This Small Business Month, you need a hiring partner that adapts to your needs you need Indeed. With Indeed, you don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it with just Indeed. You can also find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Indeed's hiring platform helps you easily schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. And if you hate waiting, according to Indeed data, candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three and a half times more likely to apply to your job than those who only see it in search. One thing that I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place easy because it does the hard work for you. Sponsor a job and boom, Instant Match shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post. With Instant Match, you can start hiring fast. And according to Talent Nest 2019, Indeed delivers eight times more hires in Canada than all other job sites combined. Start hiring now with a $100 sponsored job credit to sponsor your job post at indeed.com slash build wealth. Offer is good for a limited time. Again, you can claim your $100 credit now at indeed.com slash build wealth. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 